the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Timothy Jennings with us tonight. A look at the God-shaped brain. You know, it's interesting because we, we give mental assent to this around the, around the periphery. For example, um, we talk about Philippians 4, 8, a passage of Scripture that we are all very, very familiar with. Uh, finally, brothers, whatever things are true and whatever things are honest and just and pure, holy, lovely, so on and so forth. If they be of good report, any virtue, if they be any praise, think on these things. Why is God telling us to do that? Why are we encouraged to, to meditate um, on the things of the Lord? Why are we told to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ or put on the mind of Christ? Ironically, Dr. Jennings, we talk a lot about this issue of thoughts and the way we view things mentally. And yet, when it comes to playing this out in reality, we've not seen perhaps the, or at least been willing to acknowledge that strong connection between how we view God or think of God and the way that plays out in every aspect of life, physically, mentally, spiritually. Yeah, and I think part of the reason for that is somehow these ideas is entered into much of religion and Christianity that what happens in church is about your future eternal security. It's like, it's like future life insurance. And so you get things taken care of for the future need by going through the proper rituals or accepting Jesus, but it doesn't actually have impact on our life today. Rather than realizing what we've shown in the book is that God has actually constructed his universe to operate in certain ways. And living in harmony with his design for life actually, as Christ said, that we might have life and have it more abundantly now. And there actually is a real-life consequence to living in harmony with God's design or deviating from that design that we experience here and now. Let's talk a bit about some of the issues related to fear. We touched on this just before the break. Um, we know that there are certain chemicals that are produced in the brain when we are subject to circumstances or situations that either uh, increase anxiety in us or create a sense of fear in us, uh, that kind of a fight-flight reaction. If we view God with a sense of fear and trepidation, does that also produce that, that kind of chemical reaction in the brain? Absolutely. And, I, and this is what we've shown in, in the, in the, uh, from the science and from the, in the book, is that this chronic fear activation is actually antagonistic to love. Love and fear are inversely proportional. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hit because they were afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. And so there's actually, neurobiologically, there's this tension that sets itself up. The part of the brain where you experience, and when I use the word love, I'm, I'm uh, describing compassion, altruistic regard, self-sacrifice, beneficence. We're not talking erotic or romantic love. We're talking that, that brotherly love that one uh, loves so much they give their life for a friend, that kind of love. When Christ said, um, you know, uh, greater love is no man, they lay his life down for a friend. This kind of love means I care so much for you that I'll do whatever's for your best interest, including give my life that you might live. Many parents experience this love 
for their children. If their children are in some danger, they would easily step into that danger to protect their child. Well, that's at war with another principle that's driven by fear since Adam's sin that the scientists call survival of the fittest. I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to protect myself, including, if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. Love you, love you so much, I'll give my life that you might live. Love myself so much, I'll kill you that I might live. These are antithetical. Love versus fear. Fear drives us to self-protection and exploit and hurt others. Mm. This process then of beginning to recognize the impact that our thinking process, the way we view or react to God, a lot of it, of course, goes back to a childhood. Um, we often hear stories, uh, Dr. Jennings, of individuals, for example, who um, are introduced to the claims of Christ later in life and often struggle with the imagery of God as a benevolent, loving, protective, heavenly Father who would sacrifice his only begotten Son on our behalf. And we, we some people will reject that just absolutely out of hand because they grew up in a household where there was perhaps an absentee father or a you know drug-crazed, alcoholic, uh, driven, abusive father. And so the notion of being able to equate a loving heavenly father who sacrifices his son on behalf of all of us that we might walk in relationship with him is antithetical to their, to their manner of thinking. Yes, you're exactly right. And that is a barrier for some people. Our childhood experiences certainly can put obstacles in the way. And that's, of course, why we are called to be witnesses, uh, the hands and feet, so to speak, uh, God's uh, disciples and agents on earth, to love those individuals. And so they may not have experienced God-like love in their childhood, but they can experience God-like love in their adulthood from others who can still love them in spite of their shortcomings and anger and ultimately lead them to see Christ in us. As we talk about this notion in Scripture of uh, bringing our thoughts into captivity, how can we rewire all of this? Um, you know, this is a great point, and um, I, put it, I point out in the book that the way the, the brain is designed is that the, the, there's a protein that is like um, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. It's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Brain-derived means the brain makes it. Neurotrophic factor is simply a factor that makes the neurons grow stronger. So think of it as neuro, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. When it's available, the neurocircuitry that gets it will actually sprout new connections. The brain will make new neurons that are influences of proteins like this. But the, this particular protein doesn't come off of the DNA or isn't produced immediately in this form. It comes in a precursor form called pro-BDNF. And that particular um, protein is actually like weed killer for the neuron. If it binds to the neuron, it will actually uh, kill the dendrite, kill the axon, cause pruning back of the neural circuitry. And so the key issue is if there's, a, if there's an enzyme available that will cleave this, this weed killer into the fertilizer, then the neuron grows stronger. What determines whether you have this enzyme or not? And this is fascinating. It's the activity of the neural circuit itself. If you're firing the neural circuit, using it, it produces this enzyme. So pro-BDNF, the weed killer, is cleaved into the fertilizer and it grows stronger. The circuit grows. But if you're, if you're dormant, if you're leaving it inactive then and not using the circuit, then this enzyme is not produced and the weed killer actually takes over and you start pruning the circuitry back. And so imagine the situation of trying to study a language in high school, maybe Spanish in high school, and you're studying brute force memory and you keep practicing your firing this circuit, this new forming circuit, and this enzyme's produced, and you get more of the fertilizer, and it expands, and you keep doing it, and the circuitry grows. And then one day you graduate, and 20 years go by, and you haven't spoken the language for 20 years, and what happened to your ability and proficiency? It's been pruned back. Well, where, where every thought into captivity comes now, let's say 
um, we have somebody in their imagination imagining certain thoughts, like we can lock a pedophile up in prison so he can't act on the behavior. But can we control the imagination? No. And if you fire those thoughts in your imagination, you're still activating the circuit. You're still producing the enzyme. You're still growing the pedophilic uh, type of thinking stronger. And so the person may come out more recidivist pedophile than they went in if they're not bringing their thoughts into captivity. Hmm. So a lot of this has to do with the way we control and focus our thoughts. And again, that goes back to much of the the instruction that we've received, but sadly have never put it fully into practice within Scripture. So if we have been raised with a fearful viewpoint of God, um, and we know what the brain's reaction is to that, as much as the way we see the way the brain will react to, to violence and the numbing effect oftentimes, for example, in children that spend hours on end um, viewing violent video games or, or television programs, and after a while it tends to kind of anesthetize them to the, to the reality of what they're really facing. Then mm-hmm. when they are exposed to real significant violence, they're almost uh, nonchalant about it because they've been anesthetized to all of this. So if, if then there has been a long process of training, so to speak, the brain to believe that God is someone to be feared, and and as a result, um, has has set up this boundary uh, that prevents us from able to enter into the kind of relationship that God wants with us, or uh, the impact that it has on other relationships as we mentioned a moment ago. How do we retrain that process? Yeah, this is uh, in our book. We've introduced this idea of the. Um, integrative evidence-based approach. We have to be willing to look at evidence, and we've and we've identified three threads of evidence that God has provided. That when we harmonize all three, we can have a more consistent idea of the truth that God is trying to reveal. And the three threads are Scripture. All Scripture is given by God for inspired inspired by God is given for instruction and so forth. Science. It says in Romans one twenty that God's divine nature is seen in what He has made, so that men are without excuse. We look into nature and science and experience, taste and see that the Lord is good. Scripture says, "Check me out, experience me." And if you separate the three threads, science without the other threads, without Scripture, is vulnerable to going into godless evolutionism. If you have experience without Scripture and science, it's vulnerable to mysticism, the Eastern mysticism, which is making huge inroads in America, and then. Scripture alone without the other two. I don't know if you know, but the the Christian Encyclopedia currently identifies 34,000 different Christian groups all claiming the Bible supports their view. Hmm. And so without the other two anchors, we end up in confusion and disagreement and argument. And so bringing all three threads together, we can find a harmonized truth that reveals, and this is what the beauty and this is what we've shown in the book, is that God is love. And that love, when you come back to a knowledge of God's love, it actually activates healthy brain circuits. It turns off the fear circuits. We have less anxiety, lower heart rates, lower blood pressures, lower uh, cholesterol levels. We have less risk of heart disease. We live longer. We have less risk of dementia. All these things happen when we come back to a knowledge of God. But we hold those other distorted concepts. We actually have more disease and, and we have more disability. There's so much about this business of putting on the mind of Christ and bringing our thoughts into captivity and focusing on him. Now, of course, the big key, if you've been eavesdropping on this conversation, um, as Dr. Janine points out in the book, insight doesn't always equal change. You have to take a proactive approach. And I would encourage you today, if you've been struggling with the distorted God construct, um, maybe it's time to put off that old way of thinking um, and, and recognize that beliefs indeed impact 
uh, our physical, mental, and spiritual health and well-being. And so coming back full circle to meditate on Scripture, to bring our thoughts into captivity, and to, to imply or apply the, the, uh, the core, quite frankly, of what we're taught in Philippians 8 of what to focus on in getting back to God's Word and and reinventing, so to speak, the way we think of God and ultimately relate to Him uh, is one of the biggest keys to changing your view of God and then transforming your life. The book called The God-Shaped Brain, newly published, by the way, by InterVarsity Press, and you can get information on the web at comeandreason.com. That's comeandreason.com. And our thanks to its author, Dr. Timothy Jennings, for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We often hear stories about people that struggle with um, addictions of one sort or another, or in other cases, people that deal with um, depression that uh, is not of their own choosing, particularly in terms of a, a diagnosis of clinical depression, where people sometimes, in spite of their best efforts, are fighting a a, a monster that they just can't quite face and deal with. What does it mean? How do you address that? I think that uh, while we've made some great and significant strides in the mental health community in understanding what so-called clinical depression diagnosis is and how to treat it, how to deal with it, for a lot of us in the church, this is still kind of a big curiosity. It's a ministry. Um, joining me now is a gentleman who had to deal with this in terms of um, his um, ministry partner being diagnosed with clinical depression that eventually ended up taking his life. He talks about the story in a not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor. The book is called Laughter is Sacred Space. Ted Schwartz, great to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Fascinating book and a lot of turns uh, and, I think, ways in which we can learn from your life story. Your um, your beginnings are kind of unique in the sense that uh, you were studying in seminary and uh, had full-on plans to become a, a pastor in the Mennonite community there, part of the, uh, I guess, what, the Pennsylvania Dutch community. Yeah, around that area, a little bit east of uh, what we generally consider to be the, um, the classic Amish Mennonite uh, Pennsylvania Dutch area, a little bit east of that toward Philadelphia. Okay, so that that yeah. uh, general neck yeah. of the woods. That and uh, along the way, uh, it sounds like God had different designs than you did. Is it fair to say it that way? I think that's a pretty good way to say it. Yeah, I, I, I think that I, I'm a person who... Um, uh, like many of us, I think we're confused by some of the directions that our lives seems to be taking, and, and uh, God's hand in that may may not be a very uh, very visible at the time being. Makes an awful lot of sense uh, in retrospect. Um, I was supposed to be a, a, a traditional pastor in a pulpit, and uh, fell in love with theater while I was in seminary. And uh, I was an older student, a non-traditional student, married with three kids, three kids, and. Uh, had started um, a path uh, toward being an actor and writing writing uh, plays, and uh, I had met a um, another quite talented comedic partner, um, Lee Eshelman, and we began doing comedy together, and then and started working with biblical story and trying to find where the humor was in that story, not not trying to make fun of something uh, by laying on the laughter on the outside. Um, I like to think of it as finding where the humanity and the humor connect and create. Uh, situations of humor out of, out of trying to uh, feel out a character from the inside out. 
How did your your community, Ted, your family, you mentioned it was kind of a, a non-traditional trajectory for you anyway, yeah. insofar as the fact that you were already married and with the family, and I understand that the congregation that was anticipating you to, to eventually uh, become their pastor was covering uh, your expenses and so forth, yeah. and, and, and yeah. you make this, what it would, from an outsider, it appear to be just 180. How do you go from studying to become a, a traditional Mennonite pastor, very stodgy? and serious, you know, as, as I guess some perspectives might be, to suddenly being a comedic actor on a stage, working with a, uh, another partner in yeah. interpreting Scripture, bringing Scripture to life, finding the humor, again, not the ha-ha, let's make fun of it, uh, poke fun at it, rather, yeah. but to see the humanity side, as you say, of it all. It just, it seems to be just two absolute opposite ends of the continuum. Well, I think at one level it really does feel that way, and my congregation back home was not very happy with me. Anyway. I guess not. Huh? <laughs> uh, and my wife has been uh, extremely um, patient uh, over the years. As uh, anyone who, who starts their own business then knows that the pieces of of struggling to uh, to make make ends meet in that direction too. I, I think I've come to the conclusion that it makes an awful lot of sense um, because um, I think theater can be a wonderful metaphor for how we are supposed to function as human beings. Um, uh, to be a good actor means that you're completely present in the moment. Uh, you you have empathy. Uh, you care about another person. That's the only way you can feel like uh, you are connecting to one another on stage. There's a, a great deal of humility and vulnerability that happens when you're an actor on stage. And it makes a lot, a, a lot of sense um, uh, at one level. Uh, and also, um, it's storytelling. And, and story stories remain one of, if not the best way to communicate truth, and uh, to grab people's emotions and where their hearts are is to tell stories. Does it make um, it easier to to see other perspectives too? And I ask that question, Ted, because let's face it: when you're when you're an actor, you're you're essentially becoming someone that you're not, and you're yeah, attempting to convince yeah. the audience that you you are this person whom you're not really. Yeah. And when you absolutely. get into that position, does it allow you to see things from a different perspective? Is, is that is that how you maybe yeah. eventually were able to say, no, this full-time pastoring thing in a Mennonite church, no, that's not exactly what I'm called to do? <laughs> I, I think that was a great deal of it. I think it's part of why it felt like home to me. I felt like I was finally where I was supposed to be. I think I would have been uh, perhaps a decent pastor, uh, but there's a good chance that I would have been a very frustrated pastor. Uh, theater allowed me to find places where I was able to use the gifts that I think I was given uh, much more fully. Um, and I think you're exactly right. You have to learn how um, to care about another person uh, to be able to fully adapt on stage and to be convincing that you're, you're someone else. Um, theater and acting is a wonderful paradox of pretending to be someone else and being completely holy who you are. Mm. The best actors are the ones that just open themselves up and let you see what's inside. And, and that is why we connect people that that we feel like are good actors because we can feel them being completely honest so to uh, be to be to be convincing to those of us that are on the other side of the stage or the screen as the case may yeah. be yeah. Um, you you have to take on so to speak enough of this character and demonstrate enough understanding and and sympathy maybe to the point of empathy for who yes. this person is maybe the plight that they are facing to to be thoroughly convincing and i'm wondering did did all of that experience help make it easy for you along the way in trying to make sense 
out of um, the 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 horrific challenge that Lee was facing with a diagnosis of clinical depression? Well, that's an interesting question. I I, I think that um, perhaps so. I, I'm not sure uh, an empathetic person will be drawn. I think to 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 acting in the arts, uh, but it will also teach you. Uh, I think that's probably the case. It, it, it's you know it was a complicated relationship in many ways. We were we were best friends, um, but we were trying to negotiate this business as well as creatively. And anytime anybody uh, anyone tries to create something together, be it writing or writing music together, they know that there, there's certain tensions on, on what, 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 what that means. And um, sometimes best friends shouldn't go into business, and sometimes they should. For us, it worked really well, um, the illness notwithstanding. Um, you you spend an awful lot of time together when you have a traveling company. Uh, sometimes we spent more time with uh, one another than we did our wives. We used to joke about it being uh, our second marriage for each of us. So um, I think that was part of it. I, I didn't know a lot about mental uh, illness in terms of depression and bipolar illness at all before we met Lee. Um, and so it was a very much of a learning process. You 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 try to have as much empathy as you can for the struggles that they're going through, but sometimes life has to life has to be lived, and um, everything can't stop around. Um, if there's a business to run, there's a family to run. His wife, you know, they're raising a family as well. Um, so yes, that that's very much the case. Uh, that it was helpful, but I think any struggle like that that you go together, there's going to be ups and downs with that, and. Um, uh, and, and it sounds like there were in this case. I mean, you're you're sure. watching this happening. You're trying to understand what's happening, and yet at a level. I mean, I, I guess it's it's not as easy as it might seem to be when we say, "Well, just try to get into the other person's head, walk a mile in their shoes." This is <laughs> this is it takes it a little bit further than that, doesn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, it there's only so much you can go. Um, uh, I think it was the illness that, that made, um, uh, I wouldn't call it a barrier, but there's some things that it's, it's impossible to know how someone else is feeling when they're, when they're struck with an illness like that. Um, my own depression that I felt uh, after Lee's death and, and uh, trying to figure out what was next and, and what did it all mean and the grief that goes along with that, uh, I remember thinking a couple of times, I said, uh, I, I know what this feels like to 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 try and function on a daily basis with something that is much worse. Um, I don't know how people do it. Um, that gave me a little bit of insight, but it, 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 I want to be very clear that it was nowhere anywhere close to, to what Lee would have gone through on a regular basis, where simply getting out of bed feels like it's the biggest struggle you're going to do it, go through that day. Yeah, I mean, we're in a season, for example, this time of year, when a lot of folks struggle with varying degrees of depression because... It's for a first major holiday with a loved one who was passed on. Uh, there's there's some sense of loss in life, and uh, all of a sudden the holidays don't seem to mean as much as they used to. And there may be folks listening to our conversation right now saying, you know, uh, Ted, Craig, I'm there right now. Uh, I struggle with getting out of bed in the morning. I'm not quite sure how to get myself motivated uh, it's every fiber within my being to get up, get dressed, and go to work and try to put on a happy face when I don't feel like doing any of that. Um, what does all of this mean? How do I address all of it? Um, 
Joining me today in the conversation, Ted Schwartz. Um, Ted, as we mentioned earlier, is a Mennonite actor um, who talks about life after uh, his creative partner took his own life uh, following a a multi-year battle with bipolar illness uh, that he eventually succumbed to the disease. And uh, how do we deal with varying degrees of, um, be it depression to uh, one extreme, uh, to to outright uh, mental illness on another? We'll get back to more of our insights today right after an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our conversation today is with Mennonite actor Ted Schwartz. The book is called Laughter is Sacred Space, a not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor. This journey from studying to become a full-time pastor to discovering the the arts and then moving in a ministry direction that way, and then the diagnosis that we mentioned earlier of your partner, Lee, struggling with a clinical diagnosis of of depression to the point of being bipolar. We talked earlier, Lee, about uh, folks being depressed around the holidays, and that certainly can be a challenge. But Lee's, uh, Lee's disease went much deeper than that, didn't it? Yes, it did. It was, it was the kind that, um, well, I described it at one time, just, it's, the, uh, it's the constant companion. It's the monster that hides not just under the bed, but around every corner. It's, it's part, of, uh, part of every day. It's part of... Um, it's uh, I, I call it sometimes the demon that sits on the shoulder and whispers in your ear. Mm. Um, it, it, it's hard to um, it's hard to really articulate some of the issues that, that you seem to to deal with. Medication is an important part of anybody's treatment, medication and therapy. Um, but that can uh, most of those have uh, at least at some level um, medication. I mean side effects that affect also. Uh, who you are as a person, and, and it, uh, it it can be frustrating because you don't think you you are who you uh, are at the core of your being. Um, for some, it it becomes um, uh, a spiritual dilemma, and um, I really don't think it it, it should be. Um, people cast themselves in in, in 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 being distanced from God because they have this particular illness, and, and I think it's a uh, it's a horrific. Um, I'm not sure I'd call it a mistake, a misnomer about about what it is. How um, how did you f- discover? How did you first find out about Lee's passing? Well, it, in, in many in many cases, apparently, uh, in young men in their early uh, early to mid twenties, it can it can uh, surface. Um, so I met Lee when he was 23, and uh, so there were certain, certain hints of it before that. And uh, I was in full-time school, uh, in uh, finishing college, and then going into seminary. So I had a certain amount of, of um, life that I was doing there with a family of three boys, um, uh, very young, four, four, two, and six months when I started school. Uh, so I and my wife were, were really engrossed in that. So it wasn't until Lee and I began uh, to do a bit more work together and started seeing each other as, as, as friends and friends of the family. He was still single at the time. So it was within two years that it started to surface, and um, um, I mean, everybody has points where they're despondent, um, but they usually see that there's, uh, oftentimes we can see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and we, we help, we talk to people, we we talk to pastors, or we talk to friends, we talk to counselors, you get professional help, and you can find your way through it. Uh, for me, it just seemed to be uh, uh, something that, that with yo-yo, the manic, manic parts were were exhilarating and scary at the same time because he was tremendously creative. Uh, he was a, he was a visual artist and he was a 
a wonderful actor at the same time. So he'd be wonderfully creative at those times. Um, I think uh, a 20 to 30 year uh, struggle with this um, can wear you down. Um, so where that the highs are no longer very high, uh, but the lows continue to be low. Um, uh, that's what I, I felt like I've experienced with Lee. And, um, it, 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 at the point where he, he had taken his life, it didn't feel like it was too, in, in my mind, tremendously different than any other events over the, the previous 10 to 15 years. And, you know, we often hear that, that yeah. we look at these the circumstances immediately surrounding a person's decision to take their own life. Yeah. And you say, well, you know, the day before, the day yeah. of, they, I saw them that morning. They seemed to be quite normal. Yeah. yeah, a couple of things had happened the day before that might have added a bit to the stress, but didn't seem That's to be right. anything over the the top, anything extraordinary. But you mentioned yeah. something, uh, and uh, maybe it was just in, in quick passing, but I think profound observation, Ted, and that is the idea that this tends to wear you down after a time, that this is not a single event, but layer upon layer upon layer. Am I right? Exactly, exactly. We we had attended a concert the night before, uh, about two hours away, with another mutual friend. I had a wonderful time. It was guys' night out. We we had a, a great time, and then the next that morning uh, we set up for a show. We were to do two performances locally, Friday and Saturday night, and we set up on Thursday morning. Um, so all of those things seemed very familiar. Um, there was, I, I knew he was agitated, or, or I should say, he was he was uh, anxious. Um, that that didn't seem to be anything tremendously different, and um, you know in in. In almost 20 years on the road, we missed um, one show for a snowstorm and um, a second half of a show because I fell and, and uh, con- contuted my arm uh, on the edge of the stage. But in 20 years, that's the only shows we've ever missed. So it never entered my mind that we would miss a show um, for this particular reason. Let's pause on that point. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Uh, With us today is actor Ted Schwartz. A look at his book, Laughter is Sacred Space. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation today. Ted Schwartz is with us. His book, Laughter is Sacred Space, newly published, by the way. And uh, you can, of course, uh, order a copy through the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And, uh, Ted, is the book available also on your website? It is, TedAndCompany.com. And company all spelled out. Correct. The and and company all spelled out. Ted, I'm curious. How did you get word of Lee's decision? Uh, I was making supper. And uh, I got a phone call from a mutual friend who was a neighbor. Uh, and it's not somebody you, are not, you know, it's a friend, but it's not somebody I expect to hear from uh, around that time. And uh, she said, um, the words is someone with you, and those are never good words oh. to hear, and uh, said, you need to come over. Um, it didn't tell me exactly why, but it, it didn't take a lot of imagination to, to uh, figure that out. In the moment, we say we're shocked, we're surprised. But thinking back on it, is it fair to say that there were enough signs there that you might have seen some of this coming? I, I think the words I used, and I think a number of other people used the same words for similar situation, is you're, you're surprised but not shocked, or yeah. you're shocked but not surprised. Yeah. Um, it's those kind of 
those kinds of issues that um, um, that I think anyone who's who's been touched by it at all, uh, if, if from a very close or personal basis, would, would feel familiar. That's that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. On, on the backside, what would you say that you've learned from this? I mean, we look at these tragedies, and I know we go through the gee, what should I, what could I have done differently? What could I have said? How could we have intervened or helped? All of those questions immediately flood through your mind, and and we we struggle with. But then, as we try to make sense of it all. We try to find the, uh, what do you say, the, the proverbial silver lining in this cloud, yeah. things of that sort. Uh, I have started to uh, be in conversation with a young man of a similar age that Lee was who was struggling with a similar issue. He's very talented. He's not an actor, but we've uh, done some work together with uh, from the technical um, video aspect of it again. And I think it's to be there, to be listening as much as possible, to be empathetic as much as possible, to encourage them to seek professional help uh, if medication is part of uh, a prescribed um, um, regimen that that you listened uh, that you listen and uh, what, what happens many times is, is especially from people who have um, perhaps a spiritual or religious background uh, maybe you're a Christian and you feel like this is not something my, my well-being should not be dependent upon something that comes in a bottle and we uh, and it sometimes um, they go off medication. Um, that that can be very dangerous. Um, that's often a trigger point um, for uh, a deeper crash, um, which um, can have similar results. Not always, but it could. Um, what I've learned, oh my! Um, I think what I've what I've learned mostly, uh, you would say, is that uh, the depth of 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 care and the depth of spirit within the community that I'm in right now is much, much deeper than I had imagined that it might be. Um, what I've learned about dealing with someone with this particular issue is that um, um, you can you can be there as much as you as you can, um, knowing that there are other forces, there are other illnesses that you you just can't fix. Um, no, no amount of talking or listening that I that I could do would change that. Um, and 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 what you've said, I think there's perhaps significant because so often we get into the well, if I just said this or somehow that somehow we we convince ourselves that we can talk somebody out yeah. of clinical depression. This is not an individual who simply is having a difficult time sort of, uh, shall we say, connecting right. the dots in life, and uh, one or one or two good lessons from a slightly older American will set them no. on the right path. No. Uh, this goes much, <laughs> much deeper than that, and, 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 and maybe the efforts in trying to convince ourselves that we could have said something that would have changed it all miraculously uh, is, is, is really torturing ourselves at a level, isn't it? I think it is, and that's, that's the one thing that I continue to... Uh to struggle with, I actually talked to another another um, uh, radio station this this morning, um, uh, and I've started. I, I've written a, a one man show based on the book, um, based on my experience, not just with Lee, but a large portion of it is the relating to Lee and the discovery of art and theater together, and and uh, and his suicide and what that meant, and that um, it's not uh, original with me by any means, but uh, mourning is. The act of mourning is, a, is is just that, an action. You choose to mourn. You choose to do the things that are self-care. 
um, it's a decision that you make. Uh, grief is completely different in that you don't know when it's going to show up. And um, it, it, and and I, I say in the play that I, I made the, uh, the sarcastically a brilliant. I say it sarcastically, a brilliant decision to not make a decision to mourn, but instead to work harder to recreate myself and my business as, a, as an acting company, and then to fight the grief. And the way that ways that we fight the grief sometimes is not always, but sometimes is to deny deny its existence by convincing yourself that you didn't care that much, that it didn't matter that much. It's the way that we try and protect ourselves. As a coping just, mechanism. It's a coping mechanism. It's a dead end. It's it's uh, what I say in the plays. It's a bit like taking a rancid piece of meat and throwing it behind the couch and hope no one notices. <laughs> um, you know it's going to catch up to you sooner or later, but you just try and hide it. Yeah. Um, and and that, um, I think it's the biggest thing that I've learned is that um, um, <laughs> that that's not a very wise thing to do. Does this also for change you? To, does it force you to become more forward-looking? And by that, I mean oftentimes we'll get stuck in the past on this thing. Mm. Uh, well, there was a suicide in my family many years ago, and boy, the amount of time that, that many of us spent on all the what-ifs and gee whizzes yeah. and so forth. And yet, I think instead of, you know, while there is a time of mourning and certainly the time of grief, then yeah. to say, okay, instead of channeling our en- energies into what we can never change because it's done, what yeah. can we do moving forward to be more sensitive, more caring, more empathetic, put more into life, get more out of it, and, 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 and maybe make, make things better for somebody else, if not for them, for somebody else? I think that's, I think that's a, a great sentiment. It is astoundingly hard to do when you're in the middle of it. Um, I think that's ultimately where we need to end up, and I think um, I can't speak freely, obviously, but I think that's where he would want want me to be. Um, I I I think what, what what truncated my 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 recovery uh, and healing out of that is I um, I chose not to recognize the deep grief that was there and moved forward a bit too quickly. Um, Part of that, part of what happened when Lee died, it's not simply losing a friend; it was losing the business as well. So, if I was going to maintain my company, I had to, um, in essence, um, recreate uh, an entire um, inventory. Um, so I just began writing and wrote eight shows in two years, and ten shows in three years, um, to to create a new identity, to create a new brand, because um, most people that knew us as a company assumed that the, that the company was gone. And so it was coupled. It, it wasn't just losing my best friend. It was losing, um, it was losing a source of income. It was losing, uh, you know, all <laughs> the inventory as it were, uh, was intellectual material. that was uh, stuck in our heads. That was the inventory. Um, so, uh, I probably moved a little too quickly, but I think overall your sentiment is correct. There's, very little that can happen in moving um, moving back, but it's it's a difficult thing to fight guilt. Um, guilt is such a powerful um, piece that, that moves forward. Uh, anger is another negative energy that that is easy to hang on to, um, and both of those can be debilitating toward moving forward. And a combination of guilt and anger, boy, it just keeps you spinning. Yeah, oh. and can be terribly uh, paralyzing too in the end game. 
Ted, we appreciate the time and the candor today. I know it's a, a painful topic to uh, to relive in a sense, and yet out of your pain and your your insights, you offer us, uh, oddly enough, a lot of the pastoral care that you set out to to prepare yourself to do in the first place. Isn't it amazing the way the Lord brings things full circle? Ted Schwartz, Laughter is Sacred Space, the not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor. And the new book, as we mentioned, is newly published by Herald Press and available through Ted's website at tedandcompany.com. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.